Faith family, our children are able to be dismissed to Bible Explorers. Pam's not only willing to share the gospel, but her life with you. Great. All right. A specialized part of an angiospermous plant that occurs singly or in clusters possesses whorls of often colorful petals or sepals and bears the reproductive structures such as stamens or pistils involved in the development of seeds and fruit. What are we talking about? Flowers? Anybody else? It's right from Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, and the answer is flowers. But like most things, it would just help you to show you one rather than to try to define what they actually were. I had to actually ask Pastor Pat for some of the pronunciation of angiospermis and whorls, W-H-O-R-L-S, saples. Well, anyways, a flower is much clearer when you see one than when you have one defined. And a lot of times we learn something better when it is defined, or not when it's defined, but when it's demonstrated. Definitions are important, right? But, but demonstrations are vital. And if it is so with flowers, could we even argue that it is more so with love? We want love to be shown. We want love to be expressed. We want love to be put into action instead of defined, conjugated, parsed. And as we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, looking at verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 5, we see Paul's love for the Thessalonians not so much defined, but demonstrated. For those of you that are joining us with our study through Thessalonians, we're calling it Ordinary Church. We're trying to figure out what is ordinary group of believers with an ordinary pastor to do together for the promotion of the gospel. And as we look at this section... We know that sometimes we wonder, what is it that a pastor thinks about as he lays his head on his pillow at night? The question of, will it last, seems to be the question that endures. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brother, that our coming to you was not in vain. It is a question that is running through uh, the Apostle Paul's mind. He is the church planter of Thessalonica. And after getting the initial work underway, he was hurriedly rushed out of town, and I believe he wondered, will it last? You can even see a hint of that in our passage this morning, our section. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He is wondering if there had been labor on his part that was in vain. And as a gospel minister, you know, there are so many things that can swamp the work of the gospel that the apostle Paul, even the one who has a divine call, who clearly preached with divine certainty, wrote with divine inspiration that still when he was alone in his bed at night, still has that enduring question, will it last? Is all this work in vain? 
will anything come of the seed that I've scattered out there? And so we know that he sends Timothy here in our section to ease his mind. That's the question that a pastor has, but interesting that the questions that a pastor has about his church are different than the questions that the congregation has. In our text, it is the question of the hearts of the people that for the first time in this letter really find their, ver- their, uh, their voice. Look at verses 17 of chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 5. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or, or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, I can bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith for fear. So now the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. What stuck out to you as you heard that passage read in the tone? Did you hear the intensity of Paul's love? It's almost embarrassing. Remember being a teenager and your parent showing some kind of public display of affection to you, and your mom and dad, stop it, no. It's awkward. Don't fawn over me like that. The question the Thessalonians have is not, will it last? The question this congregation is asking is, does my pastor love me? Am I loved? Does Paul love us? That's the question we're going to be looking at this morning. And this book is a wonderful book because it places a church with its founding pastor in relation to its people, and the internal questions of both of their hearts are rising in the text. There are some things that might get you to ask that question, am I loved? Our text reveals three. First, your afflictions. Ever since they knew the Apostle Paul, their knowledge of him had led them into many afflictions because of their relationship with him. Does he love me? Look at what I'm in the middle of. Ever since I signed on, it's been nothing but a hard pull. Afflictions, certainly they appear in our text. But the second cause for this question, am I loved, is Paul's absence. He wasn't with them anymore. There's a unique bond between a pastor and his people But at times, circumstances can put that relationship on edge. Here, it's not necessarily a tough word like he might have delivered to the Galatians or the Corinthians, but here it seems to be the neglect of a word. How come I haven't heard from him since he left? Am I out of sight, out of mind? How many of us have wondered about our pastors? Would they even notice if we didn't show up anymore? Do they even know? Am I loved? Third thing is the activity of Satan. Satan hindered us. 
lest the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. All three of those are factors in the vein of our text, the afflictions they were in the midst of, the absence of Paul, and the activity of Satan. And they sit upon a congregation, and they begin to press down. And when you go to bed at night, sometimes you ask that question, am I loved? And so Paul, with a pastoral heart, wants to reaffirm the depth of his love for them. Look at verses 17 through 18 and hear the depth of his affection. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. You can see it's evidence his affection for them in that first phrase in verse 17, torn away. Anybody have an NIV? The NIV uses the word here. It's literally translated orphaned. He didn't want to be away from them. In fact, Paul says, I was orphaned from you. It's the third time he has brought familial language to apply to his relationship with these people. Remember chapter 2, verse 7? Paul says, We were like a nursing mother. His affectionate heart is placed in the context of a family. And then we see in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, For you know how like a father with his child, we exhorted you and encouraged you and charged you. And now he says, he was orphaned. I don't know if he could have chosen a stronger word to display his affection than this. How do you feel towards your children, especially when they are away from you? Or when your children are in the midst of tough times in life? Looking around the room, most of the people in this service have children that are not in the home. They're away from you. There isn't a mother that goes to bed without loving thoughts to their children. There isn't a mother in here who, seeing their child go through a tough time, doesn't wish that they could swap places and to absorb that. Honey, I wish I was the one going through that. If I could take on that, I would for you. And the Apostle Paul feels that way to this little congregation, probably not even the size of our second service here when he left them. And he wants them to know when they begin to doubt, does he love me? He says this intense familial love in which I was torn away from you. It brings us back to Acts 17 to remind us of of what tore him away. It says in Acts 17.10 that Paul had to get away immediately. That means when Paul left the church under the cover of darkness, that there was goodbyes that weren't able to be said. There was hugs that weren't able to be given. You read Acts 20, he goes to the ship with the elders and they cry and they pray together. None of that here. People went to bed, having been taught by Paul and living life with him, only to wake up and say, where's Paul? He's gone. He's running for his own life. And while Paul is away, doubts begin to swirl in the minds of the Thessalonians. Well, you know, have you heard from him? Well, you know, and they began to press on their minds. And that's why I think Paul in this book uses that phrase, for you know so much. Turn back in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 5. Paul repeats and repeats and repeats. Right in the middle of it, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Chapter 2, verse 1, 
You yourselves know, brothers, our coming to you wasn't in vain. Verse 2, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed, God is witness. Chapter 2, verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. Ten, you are witnesses and God also. Verse 11, for you know. Chapter 3, verse 3, for you yourselves know. Verse 4, it's come to pass, just as you know. It almost feels like there is a word that has gone out about Paul in Thessalonica, that Paul has been prefaced with his name, he's been slandered, and people are saying, well, you know, that Apostle Paul, he's a big dude, he has big plans, I don't think he really cares about your little church anymore. Well, you know, he really isn't even here anymore. Well, you know, he left when things got tough. And Paul says, let me tell you what you already know, that my absence from you was nothing less than a parent recently receiving a newborn child and having that child torn away from him or her. I was orphaned from you. It's a great thing to hear from the Apostle Paul, isn't it? How do you think of the Apostle Paul? Stern, argumentative, logical, willing to say the tough things, type A, never displaying feelings kind of pastor? Not so. Paul knew the people went to bed with this question of, am I loved? And he says, I want you to know the depth of my love and its intensity. And so Paul had to get inventive since he was not able to see them, even though he tried again and again. Look at verse 17 and 18, and look at these three words in one repeated action to emphasize this orphan. He says he eagerly and with great desire because he wanted to see you. And then here's a repeated action. I, Paul, again and again. Does your pastor love me? Look, when I'm not with you, it's like parents being torn from their children. I'm eager to be with you, he says. There is a readiness to be in your presence. And then he says here, I have a great desire. You know what that word is? It's a word that is used negatively throughout the New Testament for the word lust. Paul flips a negative term on its head, and he says, I am so eager to be with you that I lust to be there. I have an overpowering appetite in my soul. I lust for your personal presence. And then we have this phrase of will. I wanted to be with you. And his repeated action, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Church, a great application for us to see here is that Paul's love for his church was not circumstantial. It was not convenient like we often see in our world today. Our world's definition of love is when it's convenient, when it, when it serves my self-interest. But Paul's love is not circumstantial, it's not convenient. In fact, he had to be inventive on how to display his love for them, even though he was a great distance from them. Well, how did he do it? We know from chapter 1, even from a great distance, he could minister to them by prayer. He says, I thank my God night and day for you. I remember you always. Think of Lillian DeHart, who due to her physical 
difficulties, is not able to be with us, but she does not stop praying for our church literally night and day. It's love. Paul was also inventive in his love by pen and postage. We have here a letter. Not only one book, but two books, two letters to them. And I think that that is a great way to show your love in an inventive way is to keep touch with people to send them a note. I think our church is one of the best churches that encourages people checking in with each other through writing notes, emails, texts. There isn't a week that goes by that you are not contacted with an email or a text or a handwritten note in the mail from someone like an Irene Hibbard, a Chip Davis, the entire Deacon Caring board who replies, Skyped with Deb Zargis even though she was away in New York. Are there people now distant from you that you need to love inventively? Think about our college students, our kids that have gone into the military, our kids that are, that are, that are away from home. What Paul is doing for them is that he wants to make sure that his love and his, is, is known so that his work is not in vain. He says, let, let it not be in vain. You know what that really is all about? Consider the Greek mythology Sisyphus, king of Corinth, who was sent to Hades, and he was given that peculiar punishment of pushing a boulder up a hill, only to have it roll back down again. And what his punishment in hell was, was to keep doing that, to push it up again, only to have it roll down again, to, to push it up again, only to have it roll down again, to, to push it up again, only to have it roll down again. And Paul says, that's useless effort. I'm so afraid that the work that I've done was so useless that I thought of inventive ways to love you. Friends, you might have enormous gifts to be blessed in our praise team. You might be the best Sunday school teacher we have. You might administer oversight with effectiveness and efficiency. But if you don't love those people you are serving, it's nothing. Paul says, I tried again and again, but Satan hindered us. We have no idea what that hindering was, but he wants them to know that not only were the afflictions in their life and the absence in his life, but the activity of Satan was a factor in this congregation questioning whether the pastor loved them or not. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He sent Timothy to inquire in their faith because his fear was that the devil might come and steal that seed and his labor would be in vain. And so he says, when I thought that you were in trouble, when I thought that you were doubting, when I thought that your faith might be dying, he says, I was dying. But now Timothy has brought news back that the word that converted you is still the same word of God that is at work in you. And he goes on to say, now I really live. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. This report from you, from Timothy, is like water on a dying fish. It's revived me. I want to send Timothy to comfort you and to strengthen you, but his news has offered, also comforted my soul and revived my soul, knowing that it was Satan who hindered us and that our work is not in vain. So he goes from showing the depth of his affections to now he explodes on why he feels this way for them in chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Look at first the word for. 
It tells us why. Why does he feel this way? For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. This is why he feels this way towards them. Two things here. First, when he thinks about this church, he thinks about them standing in the presence of Christ when he comes. Have you thought about FCBC that way? Have you thought about one service, not two? And have you thought about standing together as a local body in Loudoun, New Hampshire, in the presence of Christ at his coming? That's his hope, his joy, his crown of boasting. He's thinking about the Thessalonians' present, their eternal standing. Paul says, I get stoked when I think about you in the presence of Christ when he comes. That's what motivates me. And so we see here that his love is centered in God. I think it's an important thing to catch, that Paul loves them. He can't wait to show that display to them. He lets them know of his love, but his love for them is ultimately based in his love for God. Because if we were to put as pastors the congregation, and you were to be all that we loved and had nothing to do with God, that would be a weight that you couldn't bear. If God wasn't part of this equation, if we just loved you, then we would need you to continue to affirm the ways that we show love to you. It would actually put a a crushing weight on you to make sure that I always felt that you appreciated and welcomed all the great things that I think that I do to love you. It's impossible weight that none of us can bear. Just think about a relationship as a couple. That if you think your spouse is to be your all in all, right? That's a crushing weight. No one can do that. So God has to be the central place in our love and also in our lives. And here's the principle. We love others best when we love God first. Paul loved the Thessalonians only because he loved God first. We love others best when we love God most. Sure, he was thinking about them. But his relationship with them made no sense without this eternal perspective of standing with them in the presence of Christ. The second thing that we see here, he says that you are our glory and our joy. You think about the glory that was bestowed upon the early Grecian Olympians. That when they finished their their competition, a wreath was placed on their heads. And Paul takes that analogy and he says, I get a wreath too. You want to know how I feel about you? Not only do I see you standing there when Christ returns in his presence, but when I consider myself standing there in Christ's presence, you are my wreath. You're the reason why I ran. You're the reason why I worked. I didn't do it for myself. I did it all for you. You, church, are my glory. You are my wreath. What a great image of our relationships. You want to know how to change someone's life? You have to have the same vision for their life that Paul had. You have to look forward to the day when Christ comes back. Friends, if you take up your relationships right now and you try to add them all up, and what they cost you, and figure out the sum total, I will tell you right now, it will not add up in this life. Is it worth it to lock arms with people in this church and work? Is it worth it 
No. If it makes too much sense in this life, you probably have not learned how Christ loved you and the sacrificial giving he calls you to. If your relationships in this church make perfect sense, it means that you have not considered enough what Christ has done for you and the sacrificial giving that he calls us to. Friends, have you given your heart away at FCBC? He shows the depth of his affection. He shows why he feels that way. But it goes on in chapter 3 to tell him why he made this difficult decision on his own behalf, his own sacrifice, to send Timothy to them. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left at Athens alone. The Apostle Paul is not a superhero. The Apostle Paul is lonely. He needs comfort. He's gone from Athens, and he's when he's alone, goes to Corinth, and Timothy finally arrived. And he says, you know what? It is better for you that you have Timothy than I do. And he calls Timothy here. Look at what he calls him, two things. Verse 2, and we sent Timothy first, our brother, another familial word. Then he calls him a co-worker. He's working with God. He is God's co-laborer. What great credentials. When I was wondering, would it last? I sent to you a brother, but I sent to you someone who's a co-laborer with God in the gospel. Isn't it amazing? As a pastor, we're not always together. And since we're not always together, we're not always in the presence of one another, it's good every now and again to look one another in the eye. Have you ever gone away? Maybe for a business trip or a vacation. Maybe it's just a long day at work and you come home and you're at the family table and you sit down and you say to everybody, look at me. Kids all turn. And you just look at each person. Stare them in the eye and you soak in your kid's presence. And you let them know the power of that eye contact. longer. I've been gone. I sent Timothy to be my eyes. I sent Timothy to be my presence. He is your brother and God's co-laborer. He concludes in chapter two, or chapter three, verses two through five, on why he was so concerned, why he wanted that personal contact. He says here that we wanted to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. And it is for this reason we could bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your what? Your faith. I mean, Paul wants to know about how their faith is going, and so he sends Timothy for their benefit to establish, to exhort that no one would be moved. Exhort. Establish. Words of strengthening, words of coming alongside because they were under such harsh attacks. There are so many people in this congregation who have carried the weight of ministry for so long who in this very moment are under the press of affliction. I haven't asked permission. It might not be wise. I'm sure there is somebody that I could leave out and many I have left out and that I'm unaware of. But I think it is important to remind us of the weight of leadership 
I think of our past elders like Dan and Ben who carried the weight through a pastoral transition that's never easy. Helping Pastor Jeff retire, caring for him, and leading our church, and caring for me. I think of Rebecca Allen in the children's ministry who has carried the weight for so long and is actually currently still doing the work even though there is no one in that nominated position, but she cares about our kids to have a Bible. Even when they can't read, to open it and take time. A prayer journal that our kids and Bible explorers, they write it down and they get to have prayers and next week she comes and she checks in on them. Constantly going to first service to teach, to come to second service to hear the word of God. It's a load. I think of Denise with our social committee and our funerals. At a moment's notice, in an unplanned, unscheduled week, caring for those and all the functions of the church, and for a long time. 6.30, first one here, making coffee. I know she's my mother-in-law, but I think that's a, a weight as a volunteer to be here often, unplanned, with the desire to be flexible. I think of the Chamberlains who have been in every tough position of leadership from the deacon of trustees. Doug was our deacon of CE when we write a child protection policy. He was our first deacon of the deacon caring board when we transitioned from elders to deacons. I think of our longest standing youth leader, Jim Batchelder, who started when his kids were in youth ministry who for three years has run a 50-plus youth ministry as a volunteer. I think of our elders who serve in multiple positions. I think of positive managerial skills of Steve LeClaire with a praise team for how many years in second service. When there was musicians and when there wasn't musicians. When it felt like a solo when they actually had a drummer. The Jordans as church planners to go out to harvest, only to return to enter into our church in a transition with her sister Carol and brother-in-law Jeff retiring. So wait. I think of all of those, and this is a large category that have begun with us in discipleship in the early phases when we used to teach discipleship in Sunday school classes. We had an ignition class with 12 people in it. People come, people go the first week, stop, not go back. And we wondered for many years, would we ever make a disciple pass that first generation? Would we see someone discipled be able to become a disciple maker to take somebody else on? And there were many who believed God's word, stayed faithful through winter, believing spring was coming, that now five to seven years later, there are four generations of disciples in our church. But I also have to admit that there is a great number of us that are here because they have been exhausted and hurt from being leaders in other churches. People have found our church to be a haven of rest at times after being the children's ministry director for so many years at EBC in Laconia, being the Oana's leader at Trinity, being the woman's leader at this church or that church. And they come here and they 
are in need of getting healing and their feet back under them because of how hard it is to lead. And you know that we pray faithfully for other congregations, but if a pastor ever once asked me, how could you, Josh, or how could we, Josh, pray for your congregation? I would quickly say without second thought, pray that my people would be encouraged. I think that's what Paul is sending Timothy to do because the road they are walking is hard. And church, you are blessed to have two vocational pastors four lay pastors, six men that can look you in the eye and encourage and exhort you. Look, we never said it was going to be easy. Just as you know, and it's come to pass. Our absence during the week will trouble you. The activity of Satan is sure to find you. But church, we love you. We love you. And if we are not here, we will send others to establish and encourage you. Are you so involved in the life of others that you can actually have these feelings the Apostle Paul puts here? Is there anyone that you could conceivably, honestly say, now we really live if they stand fast in the Lord? Anybody. I don't think it's just the Apostle Paul that is supposed to feel this way. I think it is the nature of true Christianity to entangle our hearts in the lives of others. So here's what it means to give your heart away. To give your heart away is to love someone, to personally invest in them, so that your joy is irretrievably bound up with them. Third John, we we preach through it. Now I live with my children, are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Have you given your heart away to people here at FCBC? Or is there a coat of Teflon between your heart and theirs? People won't change into Christ-likeness unless you give your heart away and you let them know that you've given it to them. That's the whole point of chapter 2. Paul says, I've given my heart away, but I want to let you know that I did that. And it's not just giving your heart away like our talk shows today talk about. Oh, you just need to love people. Give your heart away. Love them where they are. Don't tell them the truth. Don't say this is right. That's wrong. Don't judge. You don't want to be judgmental. That's not it. Paul gives his heart away, but did you notice that he keeps his head? He keeps his head because he still tells the Thessalonians, I can't wait to see you. But I need to come to you to exhort and encourage and establish your faith. There's still room to grow. Now, some of us love telling the truth. Maybe not the truth with love. And Paul gives a perfect balance here that as he wants to tell them the truth, it is not to punish them. It is not to embarrass them, just to say it so that everybody can hear it and to shame them or to push people away. Sometimes we tell the truth just to keep people at a distance. But Paul says, I love you and I'm telling you the truth because I want to bring you in closer. And people that know that you love them also need to know that you want their holiness, not just their approval. So do you know how to be a disciple maker? It's all right here. It begins with first looking what Christ has done for you. Did you know that Christ does not have a heart of Teflon that divides his heart from yours? Christ said, I will not leave you as orphans. Paul says, I felt orphaned. 
Christ says, you're not going to be an orphan. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to change you. All you have to do is look around for people you can love and for people you can watch over their soul for. That's all it is. First service, we got the opportunity to commission Ben and Rachel Cucci and kids. They are leaving on Thursday for South Africa. They're going to South Africa for two weeks. There is a return flight, amen. <laughs> they are going to visit our newly adopted missionaries, the Perants. And as we prayed and as we commissioned them, I thought that it was fitting to think about how that applies to our passage. The Perants, it's their first time as missionaries on the mission field to stay for good. When we could bear it no longer, even as a church has just adopted them to see how they're doing, we are sending a couple to give eye to eye, to lock eye to eye with them, to see how the work is going, to come alongside and establish them so that our investment financially, it's not just for us that we give to a local church, it is ultimately for the great commission that we give for a local church because it's our work here that keeps the parents there. And to make sure that our giving is not in vain, it is great to have a couple that wants to go and put eyes on them, put their hands on them. If you want to leave for South Africa, buy a plane ticket by Thursday. Join them. If that's too far, think about how we could do this for Paracletos, Dave, and Irene, the mission trip Memorial Day weekend. Dave and Irene, when we could bear it no longer, we know the afflictions that you have away from your missionaries. You care for them. You are a missionary to missionaries, and you're away from all of them. They come in for a week, and they leave. We know the activity of Satan wants to target Dave and Irene, maybe more than anybody else, knowing that the health of a missionary cared for by Dave and Irene might actually keep people on the field versus throwing in the towel and saying, I'm done. Dave and Irene, who's cared for you? Weight of leadership is so tough, Dave and Irene. We want to come to you. You haven't gotten a chance to look at your lodge. You can't even make a plan, maybe, because you're so concerned about the spiritual care of your children that, that get ripped away from you after one week, after one week, after the next, that you can't even have the mental energy to say, how can I take care of this lodge? Let us come to you. Let, let us sacrifice a week of our vacation to come and to assist and to come along to encourage and establish that your work, yes, it doesn't add up right now, but you and what you're doing have as your glory and your wreath and your crown of joy many different people from every tongue, tribe, and nation that you can't get to, Dave and Irene. You're in our heart and our soul. We long to be with you. We lust to see you. Anybody want to go to Paracletos in Indiana to establish and exhort and encourage those that are caring for missionaries? opportunities abound to be used by the Lord. Give your heart away. Keep your mind. Truth and love. Let's pray. God, we need you so much this morning. We thank you for those in our church that are actively applying this. And we pray for those that have been underneath the weight of leadership for so long that there'd be others that would come alongside and lock arms, might even give them a break and let them sit on the bench to get refreshed. Lord, any of us that have not served on a committee for a year know what it's like to have a Tuesday night free, an email inbox that isn't one more thing or one more problem or one more decision to make. 
God, we pray that our church would appreciate those in leadership that have willingly given themselves for the work of the ministry, but you would also move us to love them and show our appreciation and maybe even to send others to uh, replace them, to come alongside them and to exhort and encourage when the nitty-gritty gets tough. God, we pray that we would know so many people in our congregation, not just as numbers of who is here on a Sunday morning, but actual faces, names, that we would say, you know what, I only live if you are standing fast in the Lord. We pray for those that couldn't be with us this morning, maybe turned away by the snow. As we see our marching orders of how we can be a blessing to others, may we pass on our intense and inventive kind of love. We pray all this would be empowered by loving you first and foremost, that we would love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and learn to truly love our neighbors as ourselves. And we pray that our love would give a testimony of what you do, that people would know that we are your followers by the love that we have for one another. We pray that you would remove a heart of Teflon that separates any believer from any other believer. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.